Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for this opportunity to come before you and to worship you. We ask you to bless and guide and lead us as we look at this section in Song of Solomon. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, chapter 5 was a couple of uh, weeks ago with the ladies' luncheon last week. Uh, chapter 5, if you remember, she was in bed. There, her, her beloved came and called for her, and she was slow getting up, and he was gone. When she responded, we talked about how that's like many Christians not responding to God's call right, right away, and then we have to go seek him. Uh, so chapter 6 continues on. We start with the daughters of Jerusalem or the friends responding. Where is your beloved gone, O you fairest among women? Where is he, your beloved, turned aside, that we may seek him with you? And then the bride, my beloved is down has gone down into his garden to the beds of his spices to feed in the gardens and to gather lilies. I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. He feeds among the lilies. And then the groom, you are beautiful, my love, as tears are comely as Jerusalem, terrible as an army with banners. Turn away your eyes from me, for they have overcome me. Your hair is as a flock of goats that appear in Gilead. Your teeth is a flock of sheep with, which go up, up from the washing, wherefore, whereof everyone bears a twin, and there is not one barren among them. As a piece of pomegranate are your temples within your locks. There are threescore queens and fourscore concubines and virgins without number. My dove, my undefiled, is but one. She is the only one of her mother. She is the choice of her, of her that bear her. The daughter saw her and blessed her. Yea, the queens and the concubines, they praised her. So, well, three more verses. Let's read the whole thing. <laughs> Who is she that looks forth as the morning, fair as the moon, clear as the sun, and terrible as an army with banners? I went down into the garden of nuts to see the fruits of the valley and to see where the vine nourished and the pomegranate budded. Or ever I was aware, my soul made me like the chariots of Ahmednadab. Return, return, O Shulamite, return, return, that, that we may look upon you. What will we see in the Shulamite, as it were, a company of two armies? This is very poetic. Longing for each other. Uh, it starts out with the friends in verse 1. Where is your beloved gone, O you fairest among the women? Where is your beloved turn aside that we may seek him with you? And I think this is very interesting because this is the people responding to the way we as Christians are supposed to live. Where is the one that you're loving? You know, where is the one that we can also seek with you? And I think sometimes we as Christians have a hard time understanding that we are supposed to live in such a way that draws people to Christ. You know, our testimony, the way we live, and the worst thing that we can do is be talking about Jesus and living like the devil. Uh, and that happens with a lot of Christians. And, you know, the unfortunate thing is we know we sin. We know we're going to make errors. But if that's our lifestyle, and I've seen this with certain Christians, uh, I've, I've known people that were in church and you could smell the alcohol from the night on them the night before and they might even be teachers and leaders. And it's like, you stink. <laughs> you know, if I think you do, what's the world think about me? You know, how much testimony can you give while you're out there drinking with the buddies? Yeah, you know, you've got to go to church with me. God, God has got all the answers. Uh-huh, so what are you doing here? And, you know, there's one thing to be able to go out and witness to the lost world go out to where they are. But even that has its dangers because you can get pulled into whatever they're doing by being around them too much. And you may have great intentions. And you know, it's nothing wrong with maybe going to the bar and witnessing to people. But if you've got a problem with drinking, ever had a problem with drinking, the bar is not a good place to go to witness to the other guys drinking because eventually you're probably going to fall. And here, the, the daughters of Jerusalem are saying, yeah, we're ready to go find him. You know, you've talked so much about him. We know we, he sounds so good. Let's go find him. And then she goes, my beloved is gone down to his garden to the beds of his spices to feed among the gardens and to gather lilies. And I love this idea, garden, an enclosed space. Because I think about, what does Jesus say? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to me 
except, uh, comes to the Father except by me, and he talks about himself being the door. He is the only way into the garden or heaven because no one gets there without going through him. And I think this is very important. She goes, my beloved has come down. He's in his garden. He's waiting, he's waiting for me. He's waiting for me in that enclosed place. And I think this is really important. What he's saying here is Jesus waits for us. He is not pounding and dragging us. You know, he's not coming and capturing us. You know, he's all powerful. He could, he could just go over our will and say, you're mine. Here you go. But he doesn't do that. He says, I've paid the price. I'm the door. If you want to come, I'm going to open up and let you in. But if you don't come, at some point that door closes and you can't get in when we die. Now, there's a lot of people who go, well, you can get so bad that God's not going to accept you. Nope. <laughs> it's not a point that you will not be accepted until you've passed away, and then it's too late. Everybody, once they pass away and see the spiritual side, wants to go through the door. The rich man in the story of the rich man and Lazarus wanted to go to heaven once he saw hell. You know, and that's just going to be it. Once you see hell, you're going to, hey, God, I believe in you now. <laughs> uh, too late. You made your decision, and you're where, you, where you've wanted to be, and not going to get heaven. You know, everybody, when they see that what is real, is going to want heaven. Because hell is awful. And you know, the problem that we have in this lifetime is too many times because we're fleshly beings, we think this is real. No, we think this is real. You know, uh, you know, most Christians know this isn't hell. I mean, it's, uh, a lot of people think they're living in hell, and they don't know what hell is even going to be like. The statement that I love is, for Christians, this is as close to hell as we're ever going to see. And it's nowhere close to hell. The sad thing is, for those who are going to hell, this is as close to heaven. As, this is the closest taste of heaven that they have, and it's nothing like what heaven's going to be like. You know, for us, this is, this is as close as we're ever going to see to hell. But for them, the sad news is this is the best that they're ever going to know. And that's sad because this world's not that great. And they know that it's not that great. And we know that it's not that great. But, you know, it says Jesus in the garden. By the spices. And he's right there. He's gathering up, he's gathering up the good things for, for his, for his uh, love. And he's just waiting. He's waiting for our response. And then I love this statement here in verse 3. I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. He feeds among the lilies. Now this was same statement was made in chapter 2 of 16, except it was the other way around. My beloved is mine, and I'm my beloved's. Here we're seeing that she has matured in her relationship with him. She now realizes it's all about my devotion to him rather than his devotion to me. But that is where we are when we first become a Christian. I accept Jesus because he died for me and it's all about me. Even though we're going to grow, hopefully, and then realize, no, it's not about me. I get to go to heaven and he died for me, but it really is about him. Everything about him. And that's where we grow as a Christian when we make him Lord. We make him master. We get to the place where it's not about me getting heaven. It's about me having the opportunity to serve the God of the universe and do whatever he wants because he loves me and has made me his. Not he is mine, but I am his. So there's a great maturity in this statement where all of a sudden she's realizing, you know, previous chapter, I didn't go to him when he called. I should have. Now I miss him. Now I realize I should be his. I should be ready to answer the call. When he stands there, I'm his. You know, it's, he, yes, he's mine, but really I'm his and I need to do what he wants. And this is where true submission to God comes into play. When we stop, real, stop thinking about ourselves, and I say this so many times, our problems happen when we put I or me in most of our sentences. You know, you know look what I've done for you, God. You know, God, I, I have made all these great decisions for you. God, I have. God, God, I, I, I. And God's probably smiling at us when we're immature, saying, okay, you, you'll grow. But I love it when you can say, wow, look what God is doing. 
What is, look at what God is allowing me to participate in. And I love that aspect of it. I love being able to teach this church and watch people grow. Because it's not me getting people to grow. All I'm doing is lifting up God's word and watching what God does in people's lives. And I have just a small portion of it. I have just a small portion to be the, the speaker. But he's the one that shows me what to say. It usually speaks through me. And I get to watch people grow. And whoever else is listening around the world, I'm sure they're growing too. But, you know, that won't be revealed until heaven because it's God's kingdom being built. And here in Song of Solomon, she realizes he's more important than me. I'm his. Yeah? And then he goes, and by the way, he's mine. <laughs> you know, he's mine, but more importantly, I'm his. And that's a growth from where she started out the whole the whole story where it's, you know, he's mine and, I, and I'm his. It was flipped around. But that is really how we start out as, as Christians. God, I, I don't want to go to hell, so I'm going to accept you. And now, now you're mine and I get to go to heaven. And that's a good starting place. I mean, that's really the reason most people become Christians. You know, I don't want to go to hell. I want to go to, I want to, go to heaven. So God, I, I accept you. You're mine now. And as we grow, we become more and more... Re, re, uh, Understanding that it's, I'm his. He is Lord. He is the one I'm to follow. Our movie last night was that struggle that Rachel had with him being, being Lord. You know, do, do, you know, never feeling up to it. And that is the thing. If we are trying to have him first, there is going to be a point where we're always kind of backed off and saying, I'm not worthy. I'm not, I'm not doing enough. And the good news is, that's a good attitude. <laughs> as long as you don't take it so far that you stop, work, stop doing things for him because you're not, not good enough. But you know, we'll never be good enough. If we think we're good enough, then we've got ourselves deceived in the first place. But we don't want to dwell in, I'm not, I'm not good enough. You know, God, help me do better. Help me do better because you're the one that I want to lift up. And then we find out later on how many people's lives have been touched. You know, I've loved going to uh, funerals for people who have really touched people's lives. And you get hundreds, thousands of people there that just all want to talk about how they were touched by that person, especially if you knew them and they didn't, you know, maybe they didn't think that they had touched that many lives. And really, if you're living for God, doing things for him, you are probably touching more people's lives than you have any clue. And when you... Go before God in heaven. He's going to show you this person, this person, this person, this person, this person, this person, this person. They just, they watched you. They watched you living for God. And if you're trying to walk for God and do the best you can, even though we're going to fail, there's that opportunity that people go, I'm here because of that person. And I can't tell you how many times I've heard that testimony you know, well, you know, I watched so-and-so, and they said this, or they said that, and now I'm a Christian. And especially if you know that person, then you go, you know, this person got saved because of you. Oh, no way, I never, I never even talked to them about God. Well, they mentioned that you were the one that they were watching. And it's very important because we are touching people we have no clue that we're touching. And that's why when I hear Christians say, well, I'm not, I'm not nobody, nobody's paying any attention to, nobody's watching me. Yeah, well, if that's true, that means you've never opened your mouth about God. If you've opened your mouth about God, people are watching you. And your kids are watching you no matter what. And nieces and nephews are watching you. you know, there are always people watching you if, if, they, if you're a Christian. And if you're a Christian that's going to church, people are watching you. Now, they may be watching you initially to rob your house or something, but they're watching you. you know, they are watching you, and they're trying to find out, where's this person going? What are they doing? Uh, and very important. Verse 4 says, is the groom speaking. You are beautiful, O my love, as Tirzah, comely as Jerusalem, terrible as an army with banners. Turn your eyes away from me, for they have overcome me. Your hair is as a flock of goats that appear from Gilead. Your teeth are as a flock of sheep that go up from the washing. Thereof every one of them bears twins, and there is not one barren among you. 
as a piece of pomegranate is your, are your temples within your locks. So here we have a repeat of what we've, we've already seen. But his, his picture of her as beautiful. This is the way Jesus sees his bride, the church. In spite of the way we see ourselves, because remember the Shulamite says, I'm, I'm burnt, I'm ugly, don't look on me. And he keeps coming back with, you are beautiful. And he goes, you are beautiful, oh my love, as Tirza, Tirza was a city on the eastern side of the Jordan River that uh, Joshua conquered, but literally the word Tirza means favorable. You know, so he's also saying that she's favorable. Des you know, he desires her. And this is something hard for us sometimes to understand. God desires us. Why? I have no idea most of the time. <laughs> But he does. He desires us so much that Jesus died for us. He desires us so much that he created us knowing that we were going to have to be redeemed. And still, he sees us as desirable and beautiful. And I don't understand it. Nobody can ever explain that well enough. But he does. Agape love. Huh? Agape love. But, it, but it's even worse than that. He created us knowing that we were going to need to be given that agape love. You know, it's very, it's hard to even uh, contemplate. Why create us knowing what it was going to cost? And I don't understand it. You know. He did. Jesus was the lamb slain before the foundations of the world. Before he even laid the foundations of this universe, he knew that when he created us, he was going to have to die. And I it's unfathomable to me why he did it. He loves us. Yes, I understand love us. I understand the love once he's created us, but why create something that you're going to have to buy back? That's hard to, hard to even begin to understand or fathom. Uh, but he did. And I'm glad he did. But it does, it's hard to understand. And he says, you're, you're as comely as Jerusalem. We know that God favors Jerusalem and is great. But this extra next, next part is terrible as armies with banners, which to commanders looking at their army, that's a beautiful thing to them to see them all clad, clad out for war and, and bearing their banners. But it also has that idea of terror. He sees us as bold and strong. You know, we sing a lot of songs, you know, when I am weak, you say I'm strong. When I have fallen, you hold me up. You know, we really have to see, this is how God sees us. He sees us as a strong, a strong army. Do you understand that Satan is very afraid of Christians learning to follow God? Because if we truly start following God and stepping out with bold confidence, we're unstoppable because God's on our side. Satan fears Christians, which is why he works so hard to stop us from following God completely. He will throw all kinds of uh, stumbling blocks and hurdles at us to try to keep us from trusting in God. And yet those very hurdles and stumbling blocks, when we trust in God, are, are just making us stronger for the next thing to do so that we'll walk closer with God. It's an amazing thing. The, the very thing Satan tries to throw at us to stop us is what makes us strong enough to serve God in the long run. Because we get victory over these stumbling blocks. We get a boldness because he's tried to stop us and, and God provided for us to get past it. And then we get bold and Satan starts trembling in his boots. In C.S. Lewis's The Screwtape Letters, there's a it's a hard story to read in many ways, but it's all about a junior demon who is responsible for keeping somebody away from, from God, and he's doing a really good job, and then all of a sudden he loses that person to Christ. And then you still look at, well, you've lost him. You've got to keep him now out of the church. You've got to keep him from getting involved in church. And then it's like, oh, you, he's now involved with church. You've got to keep him from really following after him in Lord. Keep, keep him on the sidelines. But you know, that's what Satan keeps trying to do. He wants us on the sides. First off, he doesn't want us saved. But if we get saved, if all we do is get saved and sit in the pews, he's not worried about us. He's going to watch us. He's going to make sure that we don't get that stirring message that all of a sudden stirs us to action. 
but his whole job is to keep us as low down the totem, totem pole as possible. Uh, he doesn't want to see us get active for God. Why? Because God sees us as an army, fully arrayed for battle. When Jesus said the gates of hell will not prevail against his church, literally he meant that the church was going to storm the gates of hell. Gates don't attack. City gates do not move, do not attack. They are attacked. And God says, when my church moves, they are going to storm the gates of hell and drag people out. Not from hell itself, but from, from the entrances of hell. And really, that's what we do as, as Christians. We snatch people from the, from the jaws of hell, sometimes right before they go in. But our job is to storm the gates of hell, and it says, and Jesus said they're not going to prevail. Most people go, well, we, we can stand up to, to the gates of hell. No, the gates of hell aren't moving. <laughs> you know, it's not us standing against the gates. It's the gates cannot stand against us. And we need to get aggressive to win souls, to be out there sharing the gospel, out beyond the walls of the church, out beyond whatever it is, going out and sharing the gospel with others, and hopefully seeing people get saved so that they will not spend eternity in hell. And here he says he sees us as a mighty army in a full battle array with all the standards out. Then he says, turn your eyes away from me for they have overcome me. And this is that, that look of love has just overturned him. And this is kind of an interesting thing. It's, it's, it, they take me by storm. If anybody remembers, especially that first love word, that one glance just made you melt. That's really what it's talking about. And this is Jesus talking about it. You know, he goes, I just, I love it when I get that adoring glance from my bride, that adoring look. And, you know, I find it kind of overwhelming because I think it would be the other way around. <laughs> uh, Jesus, turn your eyes away from me. Uh, I can't take that look. But, you know, he is saying when I see that, Earlier, remember, we talked about him saying, when you look at me, it, my heart races, is what it literally breaks down to, even though it doesn't say it in the English. My heart races. Again, that picture of such tender love. Your, your love just looked at you, and you're melting, and your heart, is, your heart races, and you're, and you're going, oh, I just can't wait to get over there. Look at that, look at that beautiful person over there looking at me. You know, and I'm just melting by that look. This is what he's talking about. And this is coming from the groom. <laughs> that he says, my beloved eyes make me melt. Make me, are overcoming me. This is a love story that if we really take this to its extent, as most people believe, it's a story of Jesus and his church. It's a very powerful picture. The church captivates Jesus as much as Je the church is captivated by Jesus. He's paid a price, and when the church looks adoringly at him, he is motivated even more <laughs> to be turning to her. That's not a picture we usually think of. No. Yeah, he loves us enough to die for us. He loves loves us enough to change our life and to clean clean us up, you know, and then loves it when we give him that love back. In some aspect of his agape love, it goes beyond agape love to more love that responds. You know, he loves everybody, but the church is loved with a deeper love. I guess that's it, the, the responding love. I mean, because we, all, we know Jesus loves us, but that kind of love. This is responding love. Yeah. We're loving him, we're giving him attention, and that just melts his heart to give us more. Yeah. So in one sense, the church is greater loved than the whole world. Because we're his. And we're looking at him, and he's responding to that love. Just like we as people can have agape love for the entire world to a degree by learning it. We have filial love, which we have our friendship love. There's certain people you love more than the whole world. Okay, yeah, I'm going to tolerate you. I'm going to put up with you. That's my agape love. But there's other people you want to be with. There's the family love, which is the church should have one for each other. I love you because you're family, and that's a little deeper than even the brotherly love. And then we experience the erotic love that, that goes between a husband and wife. And Jesus has that love being shown from this, this thing. You're looking at me, and I desire to have you. I desire to hold you. 
And this whole picture of, as he's going in, is much deeper than we ever really think about. God has the other loves in him. He's not just agape love. He loves and he has friendship love and fam family love. And obviously with his bride, he's going to have the not necessarily physical erotic love, but he's going to have a deeper attachment to that bride that's being prepared for him. And in basically saying, I melt when I look at you. When you look at me, I melt. I'm overcome. And, I, and I've never really thought about that so much. I, I do every time I read this book. But I don't usually think about it beyond the times when I'm teaching and studying this book. But it is a different way. God sees us as his bride differently than he sees the rest of the world. There is a special care he's going to take for his bride. And I have talked about this. You know, How many times do we speak evil against another Christian? Yeah. And I know how I would react if somebody's speaking poorly about my wife. I can't imagine what God thinks when we speak poorly against his bride. You know, I don't want to be on the wrong side of that argument. <laughs> and yet so often we can be. And we need to be careful about that. He's going to be more jealous about his bride than he would be the rest of the world. And he doesn't like to speak evil about anybody, but especially his bride. Because it has a different level of love. And then he goes on, your hair is as a flock of goats that appear in Gilead. And we talked about this before, that this particular goat has a very silken hair. So this is quite a comment, not compliment. It's not like the goats we know of here in America with a really wiry, rough hair. Go ahead and tell your wife she looks like her hair was like a flock of goats. I had to make sure she knew it was a flock of goats from Gilead. Um, but these particular goats have a very fine silken hair. Uh, they're not the wiry goats that we know of in America. He says, your teeth are, are as a flock of sheep that go up from the washing, everyone bearing their twin, and there is not one barren, which means her, she had all of her teeth, and they were clean. Which in our day and age doesn't really sound like that big a deal. But it wasn't so long ago that if you had bright white teeth, Everybody looked at you as if you were funny because toothbrushes and, and visits to the dentist to keep them white were not the common errand. And because you didn't take care of your teeth, you were missing a lot of teeth. It was only the very wealthy who knew to care, care their, take care of their teeth that had full, full sets of teeth. And that was because they went to the dentist. They had them clean. They brushed their teeth. They, they kept them good. He's saying, you've taken care of your teeth. You, you have taken care of yourself. And, you're, and you look good. Your smile looks good. Now, you might have to understand also that not all sheep are bright white either. <laughs> okay? But she had all of her teeth. She hadn't lost any. Every one of them was there. They had their twin. Uh, and there's none barren. You're not missing them. So this is quite a compliment to her. She, is, she has done her part. She is trying to sanctify herself. And I believe this is a picture of the church through our sanctification that we're we're gaining the beauty, uh, being taken care of, brushing our teeth, combing our hair, uh, washing our hands, <laughs> all the things that would go along with that. He goes, as a piece of pomegranate is your temples within your locks or your veil. And we talked about that last time that probably, in the, and you ladies actually made a big you know, point, you know, she probably has learned to highlight her cheeks and everything with just enough makeup to, to make them stand out, put the blush on to... <laughs> And, you know, we think sometimes of, uh, uh, yeah, thinking costumes, but that's not the right word. Makeup. Makeup being a new thing, but makeup has been used at varying degrees forever. Uh, but that's kind of what this is talking about. Maybe not rouge, but highlighter and, and, and stuff like that. Who knows what levels they were. But just as today, there's ways to put makeup that accent or to put way too much makeup and overpower, overpower. And a lot of women use the overpowering one. And he's really picturing this person who's learned how to accent. He doesn't talk about her lips here, but remember in the previous one, he talked about her lips being red and, and everything, you know, just right. Uh, now he talks about something that's interesting. There are 60 queens and 80 concubines and virgins without number. He's talking about his harem. At, at this point, he still has a pretty large harem at, the, at this point. Uh, 
But he goes, my dove, in verse 9, my undefiled is but one. All right? And this one he's talking about, she is the one, the special one. Now, I don't know if she's always going to hold that place in Solomon's picture. But for Jesus, he says, this is, you're the one. You're the only one. <laughs> and, they, uh, and again, this amazes me that God looks at us with such great desire, such great love and longing desire. And I find it hard to believe, you know, because I've always said, you know, when God saved us, you know, he made a very bad deal. We get him and all of his glory and all of his treasure, and he gets us. But somehow he doesn't see it as a bad deal. He talks about us being perfect and, and without blemish and, and so loved and so beautiful. And I just, I don't understand it. Because I know who I am. And the closer I draw to him and the more I see how evil I am, the more I'm awed that he ever wanted me in the first place. You know, and we see this happening with people who live in the gutter and stand up, but you know, even people who have never gone all the way down to, you know, to the gutter, if they walk long enough with God, they really start seeing, wow, God, I'm, I'm not that good. I may have thought I was good. I, I didn't hit the gutter. I wasn't, I wasn't in prison. I wasn't, I wasn't a drunk. I wasn't, an, you know, I wasn't hooked on drugs. But you know, we still look at ourselves, and when God starts showing us who we are, and we go, ugh, it's kind of ugly in there. God, uh, I'm really not that special, am I? may not have been quite as bad by human standards as that person, but I'm really not worth anything. And I believe this is, you know, I've always said, I believe that when Paul said, I'm the chiefest of sinners, all the most every commentary I read talks about him saying that about what he was. I don't believe that. I believe he started after, even at the end of his life, he started really seeing, okay, I thought I was pretty good as a Pharisee. I thought I was pretty righteous, but wow. Look what God is showing me to be. Look at my heart. God, I am awful. I'm terrible. And we all need to see ourselves that way, to a degree. Don't dwell in it. Don't get lost in it. But understand, in myself, there is nothing, that, nothing there for God to want at all. No matter how long I've walked with him, no matter how many sins he's taken out of my life, there's still nothing in me for him to desire. Because, you know, as I say, I look deeper and deeper in my heart. I'm going, God, I don't understand how you'd want me. You know, you've, spent, you've spent 40 years getting all this stuff out of me, 48 years getting all this stuff out of me, and look what's still in there. Matter of fact, there seems to be more there now than there was when I started. And yet, God desires us and loves us enough to get us. Well, it takes a long time to get all this stuff out of us. And even then, we're never going to have it taken out of us until we are glorified in, in inner heaven. But again, we see more and more, as he shines a brighter and brighter light in us, and it goes deeper and deeper into our heart, how ugly our heart truly is. Because when we first get saved, we have our idea of what we've got to get rid of to, get, to be there with God. In my case, it was my anger and my, you know, and my fighting all the time. You know, got rid of that, and all of a sudden, God keeps showing me more and more and more and more. <laughs> and in one sense, it really does go to the movie we saw last night. Every time she would step forward with God, something else would pop up and she'd realize that she wasn't where she needed to be. And it was dramatized and everything, but that's the way we all walk. We start walking with God, everything's going good, we got rid of, we got rid of all of our problems, you know, I'm, I'm doing really good, God, it's you and me, and we're going to win everything, and all of a sudden he shows us a little more light in our heart, ugh. I don't deserve God. You know, we, we, and the problem is sometimes we stop and we wallow in that defeat, as she did in a couple of times in, the, in that movie. And we wallow around, and then we go, God, you don't want me anymore. Look, at, look how bad I've been. I, and then we realize he does still want us. And that's just what the devil wants. He wants us wallowing in. Well, I'm not good enough for God, so I'm, I just can't do anything. And he feeds that negativity. God's showing us something to get rid of. Satan's coming along and saying, well, see, see how bad you are? God doesn't want anything to do with you. No, God's got one more thing to work out of us. And when we get done with that, there'll be another thing that pops up that's going to be the same process where Satan's going to say, yeah, see, you're really, see how bad you are? You thought you, were getting, you, you thought you were going to get there. Look how bad you are. And this is why we've got to be in God's word and start really realizing 
who we are in Christ. One of the reasons I play as many of the songs that we play about who we are in Christ and seeing us is because I want people to start seeing, their, seeing ourselves the way God sees us. He sees us perfect. Yeah. He's telling her, I see you perfect. Matter of fact, I melt at your glance. You know, I, I love you so much that when you're looking my way, I just melt. I can't wait to be with you. And we're looking at, he doesn't want anything to do with me. How many times does that happen in real relationships? Somebody's wound up in what they've done wrong and that person can't love me. And they're expressing their love and trying to, trying to break through. And Well, they're just being nice. They want to get me alone so they can really, really tell me what they think, but I'm not going to let it happen. And relationships fall apart when people get that way. When there's true love between a husband and wife, oftentimes one's pulling away from the other because they don't feel worthy. For whatever reason, they don't feel worthy. We do this with Jesus all the time. God, I'm just not worthy of you, so I'm just going to hang back. And he's saying, come with me. I love you. You're perfect. You're, you're altogether perfect. As a matter of fact, you are perfect and complete. Come with me. And we're going, no, you keep showing me my heart. I'm not there. You keep shining the light brighter. You must not love me because you keep showing me this light. And I'm not worthy of you. And if I can see it, you must see it. And he's saying, no, all I see is my righteousness on you. And we've got to understand that when God looks at us, he sees the righteousness of Jesus. What we're going to be. What we are in his presence already. Because he's already where, we've, already where we're going to be glorified. So when he says we're perfect, he also knows that we are perfect. Even though we're being made perfect. <laughs> at the same time. You know, he, says, he says, I know you're really bad, but you're perfect. You're being made perfect, but you know what? You are perfect. And he sees us the way we will be because he's already there with us in our perfected bodies. And we're going, God, I don't understand. But he says, I do. I see you totally different than you see yourself. And this is why it's important for us to start seeing ourselves the way he sees us. I am perfect. Now, I know I'm not perfect in this particular walk, but God says I am perfect because he knows what he's going to make me to be. Because we are his, and we are perfect in his sight because he clothes us in the righteousness of Christ. And this is why I love the picture in the Old Testament of the priest standing before God and being cleaned up and, and the devil standing there. And at the very end, you know, it's like, okay, now, now, now what is it you wanted to tell me? And the person is now clean. Satan has no accusation against us because we are perfect in God's presence because he cleaned us up. And he looks at us and says, this is perfect. Okay, Satan, what was your problem? He might even tell us, okay, why aren't you up here? Why, why, why are you having a problem? Would you please see yourself the way I see you? You think you're, you're weak? I'm holding you up. You think you're sinful? I've cleaned you up. I paid for that. Jesus died on the cross and put sin under the blood of Christ. And when we accept that gift, he clothes us in our, his righteousness. Satan has no accusation that will stand before God because all God sees is perfection. And when we stand up in court, you know, if we were to stand up in court before him, Satan, the accuser, is going to stand there, look over, and see perfection. Matter of fact, he's going to see Jesus Christ's righteousness. And Jesus standing next to his bride and the father standing over, okay, Satan, what was... What was your accusation? What, 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 what did you want to say about this? And he won't have an accusation when it comes to the end. Hard to imagine. Yeah. It's, it's completely unimaginable to us. And then, he, you know, in verse 9, he goes on to say that she was the only, the, the only one of her, of her mother, the choice of her mother. The, and it says, the daughter saw her and blessed her. The world sees her and blesses her. Now that ebbs and flows over time <laughs> that the world sees us. You know, it depends on the attitude that they have at that moment. Uh, but he said, not only the daughters saw her and blessed her, yea, the queens and the concubines, they praised her. This is quite a bit of love for the, all the other concubines in the, in the harem <laughs> to praise her. They might be trying to stay on his good side more than anything else. But the whole point is the world sees us and they do know that there's a difference for Christians 
when we're living the way we're supposed to. And, you know, we need to be able to live that way so that people look at us and say, I don't know what's wrong with them. They're crazy. They're nuts. But they're, they, are, they seem to be happy. They seem to be joyful. They don't participate in all the same things. You know, I'm trying to find happiness and all this stuff, and yet they seem to be happy, and all they do is go to that dumb church down the road, you know, read their Bible all the time. They're praying. They're talking about Jesus all the time. I just don't understand how they could be happy. They're not doing drugs. They're not doing alcohol. They're not, they're not sleeping around. They're not, they're not trying to make themselves look good. And yet, they seem to be happy. The world takes note of that. Because what do they want? They really do want happiness and joy. They think they're going to find it in everything but God. And that's what our Sunday is about with Ecclesiastes. You know, if, maybe I'll find him in this. Maybe I'll find him in that. Maybe I'll find him in here. They'll never find him until they get to know him. And yet they look at Christians and then go, and they seem to have found something. But I'm really not sure about this God thing. It can't be the God thing. You know, that's, you know, it can't be that. And yet that's the only thing they can see that's different about us. And here we see everybody praising the Shulamite. And it's hard for me to picture the queens and the concubines praising her because they're taking the heart of their, of their, their lover. But at least the way Solomon sees it. <laughs> yeah, but if you've ever been around enough women, pretty and nice uh, doesn't stop the other ones from uh, attacking. It usually makes it worse. Uh, because they're fighting for the boy, same boy or the same attention. Uh, this, the, the statement is hard, but from Paul, Solomon's perspective, he loves the Shulamite. It, you know, he's blind to anything going on, and what's going on behind the scenes may be very different from what he sees. Uh, so from his perspective, they're all being nice to her. She's the number one right now. So they're being nice to her, at least in front of him, and that's what he sees. Verse 10. Who is, who is she that looks for, forth as the morning, fair as the moon, clear as the sun, and terrible as an army with banners? And this is the friends, you know, going, who is this that you're talking about, groom? <laughs> who is this that's so beautiful that you, you, look, you look for her in the morning, you're, 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 overlook, you're at the overlook, you, who is as bright and, and shining as the sun, and terrible as an army? Who, who is this you're talking about? And you know, this is the way the world looks at us. All right, you guys are kind of weird. You're, you've got all these things going on, but who are you? How can you love somebody? How, you know, and the world gets amazed. And I've talked about this several times. We always talk about loving the person and hating the sin. The world cannot separate those two because they, you are what you do. You, you know, in their mind, you are what you do, and you can't split the two. As a Christians and followers of God, we split the who the person is from what they do. And we really want to lift them up. We want to see them successful. And the world can't do that. And the world can't really understand how we can hate what they do and still love the person. Because they can't. Number one, they can't love hardly at all anyway without getting something in return. We're trying to practice agape love. I want to love this person, show them God's love, and that's hard. The world will not love somebody unless they get something back in return. I love this person because they make me feel good. I love this person because they give me something. That is the way the world loves. That's not God's love. God's love keeps pouring out, pouring out, pouring out. And we as humans have trouble with that kind of love. Because we're fleshly beings. We like to get something in return. But true godly love pours out and helps in spite of what we get back in return. And that's sometimes very hard to do. You know, as a pastor, my job is to love people and pour out to them, whether I see anything good into them or not. Now, it's nice when you, get some, when you see some results. And it's, and it's easier to love that person. But Jesus says we're to love our enemies. We're to do good to those who hate us and despitefully use us. Now, that doesn't mean lay down and become a doormat for them, but he says, love them. Help them. All these different missions that go out to try to help the poor are just like that. They know they're going to get used on many occasions. 
when we give food out, many times we are not sure that the people really need it or they're just trying to supplement their, their hoard that they have or you know, are they really being helped? And it's hard sometimes to know whether you're really helping somebody who's poor. Because are they poor? Are they not poor? Are they really in need or are they lazy? Are they so addicted to sin that they've spent all of their money and, and then you're helping them fill in the gap so they can spend all their money on the, on the sin some more? But you know, our job is just to love them and do the best we can. Now, if you know for sure that they're using it to be able to do bad, then you cut them off because you're not helping them anymore. But if you're not, if you're not sure, you just help them. Many of these missions that would go down into the Skid Row areas, they would just help people no matter what. You're here, you're drunk, you're having lots of problems, we'll give you the necessities to get you through the night. We'll get you a bed, we'll get you some clothes, we'll get you, you know, you stick around for a while, show us that you're really seeking God, we'll try to find you a place to stay that's more permanent. And many of them do. You know, they don't instantly say, well, okay, let's take you in and give you a house. <laughs> you know, they'll give them a bed, they'll give them little things that they're thankful for it and they're starting to grow and turn their life over to God and get an improvement, then they will help them take the next step. Let's go, let's try to find you some place to stay. Let's get you a room, get you a job. But their initial one is, let's just get your immediate needs met. We'll tell you about Jesus. And our job is really help people with their immediate needs, tell them about Jesus. And we need to do more and more of that. How can we help people and really help them so that we can then tell them about Jesus and salvation? Because it all comes down to that need of God, I'm a sinner. I deserve punishment. Thank you for dying for my sins. I accept you. Come into my life and change me. And then watch him change. Nothing better than the, to watch somebody get saved. It is so wonderful. You see the lights in their eyes come on. You see the, the cares lifted off their shoulders. And the description that so many people make over and over again, and I vaguely remember even as a 10-year-old, sin being lifted off my shoulders. The, the weight of the sin coming off because I said, God, I need you. I didn't have heavy sins as a 10-year-old, but I was not a nice 10-year-old either. I was an angry, fighting all the time 10-year-old with a very bad temper. God lifted the temper off of me and able to go forward. He does that for us and it's a wonderful thing to watch him change lives. And it's wonderful as we work in sharing the gospel. And I can tell you, most every time I've watched somebody pray, and, it's, and they've meant it, literally watch lights come on in, in their eyes and they become alive. There's life in their eyes. There's life in their expression. And you know, one of the things I've said over and over many times when somebody gets saved, you can almost see years fall off their body. You know, you look at them and go, did you do something? You look like you're 10 years younger. The care, the worry, the, the weight drops off. They stand taller. They, the depression comes off their face. Now, sometimes we as Christians will get ourselves back into it all, but, but it's wonderful to watch that initial freedom. God's lifted the burden off of you and changed your life. He goes, then they go, and the groom starts speaking, I went down to my garden of nuts to see the fruits and the valleys and to see whether this vine flourished and the pomegranate flourished. Wherever I was aware, my soul made like the chariots of the Amadabib, which is a city that they don't even know where it is. It's either a city very famous for, for chariots or it literally means uh, my people are willing. So he comes to us and he has a people who are willing. I like that part of it. I believe that it's not necessarily a city, but that it really should be a, that my people are willing. But he says, I went down to my garden to see whether the vine flourishes. What did Jesus say in, in uh, John 15, 8? I am the vine, you are the branches. He that abides in me and I in him, though he, the same shall bring forth much fruit. When we abide in him, fruit will be produced in our life. Ideally, it should be that we bring souls in, but at least we see changed life. He washes us out, the Holy Spirit indwells us, and we become sanctified. We become more like him with each passing day, week, month, year, 
decade, probably not centuries for us as humans, but uh, you know, that we become more like him. Each day, and this is why at the, when we do our New Year's thing, most of the time my message is about, are you different today than you were at last year? How has God changed you? How has he made you better? How are you hooked into the vine and growing? You know, it's kind of funny that uh, we have a tomato plant at home and it grows these little tomatoes and they start out really, really tiny and they get bigger and bigger. These are only cherry tomatoes and then all of a sudden when they get to a certain size, they start turning from green to red very slowly and then they get to the place where they're ready to be picked. I think about how we're supposed to live attached to the vine. We're hooked to the vine and there should be fruit in our life that gets more and more ripe as time goes on. And it may take us our, our entire life to have the fruit be totally ripe, but he sees it. And I can almost picture him getting excited. There's the flower. The flower's there. Let's get it pollinated. Oh, there, there, there's the tiny, tiny piece of fruit. Whatever it is you want to say, you know, the unicorn, the, the tomato, the apple, whatever, they all start as a flower, and they all start as a very tiny fruit, and then grow. Yeah, yeah. whether it's a pomegranate, a banana, an apple, a pineapple, they all start very small and get bigger and bigger. Huh? So in reaping. And I can picture God just looking at, you know, ah, there they are. There, there's the flower. They really don't see it yet, but there's the flower. There's going to be a piece of fruit there soon. It may take a while for that fruit to mature. But he's saying, I can almost picture him getting excited. Oh, there's another flower. Because with our tomato plant, I've sometimes gone out there, you know, about a week, every week I'll go one, two, three, four, five. Oh, there's five now. No, there's six now. Yeah, sometimes it'll stay six for a long time. We'll pick one, and then another two or three will start growing. It's like, oh, now there's nine. Oh, now we're down to four. Yeah, but you know, I can picture God sitting there just counting. Oh, here, look at look at all the all the fruit on there. Oh, there's a bunch of flowers. How many of them are going to be pollinated? Yeah, and just counting. I can picture him counting because when they're dormant doesn't mean that they are dead. Usually they're growing stronger, getting more nutrition into their, into their vine and being hooked into the vines and growing. You know, and we do have that same thing, especially with trees and stuff. Uh, and I, I remember reading an article about trees in a biodome, that they got to a certain place and the, and the trees started splitting. And they finally called in a botanist and said, why are our trees splitting in half and then go that's real easy there's no wind to help them get strong you've taken away the wind which helped the tree get strong and they don't have that here so they're they're weak and we think sometimes we life would be so much better if we didn't have all the trials and God says no my trials are making you strong my trials are helping you grow my trials are helping you depend on me more and if we look back over our life, it really is true. Every time we go through a trial and we get out of it successfully, we grow. Even when we fail, we still have grown. We finally learned how weak we are and that we need to depend on him. But then next time, maybe we would depend on him and we get stronger because we're starting to depend on him more. And we depend on him more. And eventually, we start depending on him more, more often than not. And our weaknesses start becoming less and less or our failures are less and less. And this is something that's very important for us to understand. We need what we perceive as bad to, get, to grow or to prove that we have grown. How do we prove that we've grown? We have to go through a test. How do teachers know whether somebody's learning or, or not? They give them tests. How does God want to know? And it's not God wanting to know, it's him wanting us to know that we are grown. And that's the purpose of the test. The test isn't to say, did you learn or not learn? It's so that we know that we have. Because we think we've learned a lot of times until we go into the middle of the test. 
And we fall flat on our face and go, how in the world did that happen? I, God, I thought I really understood that. I thought I really knew that. And, and I failed. And God is saying, all right, just get ready for the next one. Get ready for the next one. God, I trust you. I think you're, I think you're all good for me. I think you're going to keep me. And then the first time we have a trial to say, do I, will God keep me? We, we totally fall. And we make all kinds of mistakes. And God says, okay, get you ready for the next one. Do you really believe? Do you really? When he went to Peter after Peter denied him, he did not ask Peter, do you, do you love me three times? Because Peter uh, rejected him three times. He asked Peter three times because Peter never answered the question. Peter, do you agape me? Peter goes, Lord, you know that I phileo you. I love you like a brother. I can't, I'm not going to say I love you unconditionally. I just, and at that time, I think he really was thinking back to the, the denying. You know, God, I can't say I love you unconditionally because I denied you three times. I, I just phileo you. I love you like a brother. Yeah. I love you enough that I'm not willing to die for you. <laughs> then he asked him again, do you agape me? And again, Peter said, no, I, you know, I phileo you. You know I phileo you. And what really broke Peter is when Jesus came down to the same level that he did, and he says, Peter, do you really phileo me? And that's when Peter didn't even answer. He says, Lord, you know all things. Okay. Now, it could be a reflection back to, and, and I understand that Peter was looking back himself to the denying. You know, but Jesus didn't go three times just because of the denying. He, be, he came down three times because Peter never answered the, ans answered the question. He eluded the question when you read it in the Greek. He never answered it. And then when he finally got, even when Jesus came down to his level, that's when he couldn't even, wouldn't even answer it. He says, you know all things. You know, God, I think I love you, but I can't even, now that you're asking me at this level, I'm not even sure that I can say yes at this level. Because he was still looking back to when he denied him. And he couldn't really believe that Jesus would forgive him. Even though Jesus told him he was going to f deny him in the first place. You know, it wasn't a surprise when he denied him. And his guilty conscience when, when, he, when the cock crowed and he said he looked and saw Jesus looking at him. I don't think specifically that Jesus was looking at him. It was just his guilty conscience. Because I've been accused of that so many times of preaching. You were looking straight at me while you were preaching. Well, I may have caught your eye once or twice, but I'm really not looking at you. Well, I know you were. Peter's guilty conscience was, oh, he's staring at me. You know, and our guilty conscience can make all kinds of bad, bad decisions for us. And then the, the, the friends say, return, return, O Shulamite, return, return, that we may look upon you. What will we see in the Shulamite, as it were, a company of two armies? They had heard what he said. They are like the army. They are like the... The, my love is like an army. My love is beautiful. And they're probably thinking, is that who we're seeing? Are we seeing that kind of person? Because the world doesn't understand. The world doesn't understand Christ. doesn't understand seeing people the way Christ sees them. And, and you'll see this return, return. is very emphatic. And then they repeat it again, return, return. So this is a four-time repetition real quick. Uh, granted, they put O'Shulamite in between there, but... They're really emphatic. Uh, come back here. We want to see. Come back. Come get back here. We want to see what he sees. We, we're not seeing what he sees. And this is when people of the world really start to turn and say, what are these Christians all about? What are they all about? When they're showing love, they're showing kindness, and we just, they even get taken advantage of, and they don't, and they don't get mad at somebody. They, they're, they're treated badly, and they don't get mad at somebody. And it's, they don't understand. The world doesn't understand. We as Christians don't understand <laughs> when, when the Spirit is working through us. And we don't get offended by all the abuse that can happen. We need that love of God flowing through us that will touch the world and make the world take notice. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for your love, your care. Lord, we ask you to help us see people the way you see them. Lord, other Christians, that they're perfect. And Lord, for those who aren't Christians, we see people that are suffering and hurting that need your love and care. 
Help us to see them the way they are and help them to grow and be able to minister to them without evil thoughts, without hard feelings, Lord, that we will lift them up in love. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.